Welcome to the Moving Beyond Your Tribe, where we dig deep on how to stand out from the crowd by building bridges and breaking free from the comfort zone of colloquialism, industrial language, and jargon to find new words, new thinking, and new approaches to ignite action, mobilize a wider network of ambassadors, create customer loyalty, even in a downturn, and build better internal culture. Hi, I'm your host, Torin. I'm bilingual and throughout my life have straddled two cultures, Norwegian and American. I've worked in 10 different industries spanning 25 countries. I have seen firsthand the power of diverse collaboration to create impact across cultures, countries, and the political divide. On this podcast, we will bring on notable leaders from all walks of life to teach us and provide us tools on how they have moved beyond their comfort zone and create amazing breakthroughs of profit, opportunities, and impact. Now let's get started. Hi, welcome to Moving Beyond Your Tribe. I'm really excited to have Mark Kloisterman back again. He was one of my first guests last year, which is really exciting. At that time, we were talking more about his branding group, which is Vim Group, which here he services about the Fortune 100s on their branding. And what would be really interesting is bringing him back, having worked in such a high level with corporations and working with branding, to talk a little bit about how do we live in the new normal of COVID-19 and get your viewpoints. How are you today, Mark? Yeah, I'm doing really well, too, and it's a, it's a pleasure and an honor that you've asked me again. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, given the subject, of course, it's a joy. I can talk all day about that, but uh, really uh, grateful for that and a uh, pleasure to be speaking again. Yes. So it's about, it's almost a year, which is really interesting. It's been practically a year since we talked. I never thought we would still be wearing masks, never thought we would go into lockdown. I think in Norway, it's number three. In the U.S., we're still on number two and opening up more. I don't know how it's in the Netherlands. How is it there? Well, over here, we are, I mean, so the Netherlands is a liberal country, isn't it? So, so we have a lot of rules, but then it's a lot of recommendations from the government. So officially, we're in a kind of a lockdown situation. But unofficially, it means that people are moving around. But uh, the restaurants are closed. Terraces are closed, and they are due to be opening in a few weeks from now. And the vaccination program is only slowly uh, ramping up, similar to the rest of the EU. I mean, companies with more single countries with more single minded, like the US and the UK, are doing much better at the moment than we are. But we'll, we'll get there. And then uh, hopefully we will have a better summer. But um, unfortunately, that will not be uh, for the rest of the world, I'm afraid. I mean, it will take years before the whole world will be uh, vaccinated, I guess. So is it like a perception in Europe that you need a vaccination before you can function as a society? Maybe not in Europe with the people, but definitely with the governments uh, here. Right. Yes. Right. Okay. So when last year we spoke, we were just in the, just at the start of the lockdown, and now we're kind of getting used to this lifestyle, which I didn't think I would have to get used to. What have you learned from working with these various corporations, managing your own company in this situation? You know, there's a number of layers there. So as a company, uh, at VIM Group, uh, I feel very privileged because our work has grown and more than we thought and uh, more than we budgeted for in last year. Oh, wow. And I think there's a few reasons for that. 
first of all, it's just luck that you're in a business that appears to be resilient. I mean, I could have been a restaurant owner. Well, not very likely, but theoretically, <laughs> I could have. And then you're just stuck. I mean, what, what can you do? I mean, it just hits you. You're in the middle of it. But for us, um, the first impression was that, okay, this is going to hit us badly because we would anticipate that clients would stop the work, which they did in April and end of March, um, which is totally normal. If you work for a car company like Volkswagen and their sales is plummeting, then they stop a lot of expenditures with the people they work with. We were right. amongst those. So when you see that with four or five clients, you go like, okay, what's going to happen? However, weeks, only weeks after that, the work picked up again. And also picked, pe- picked up again. Well, because it dawned upon people and, and also our clients that the world was going to change rapidly, faster than ever. I mean, you would, you, and we will talk a lot about it today, because the increased speed of the digitalization is driving a lot of things in the world. And a lot of people already then understood that the positioning of a company in the world will change because of the pandemic due to a variety of factors. Well, if the positioning changes uh, and the the digitalization speed increases, you also need to look at simplification of your business. And this has led to a lot of work for us where people have been asking, okay, we need to simplify our branding, our portfolio, our brand architecture. How can we go about that? And that, that started almost immediately. That's one thing. The other thing is we have quite a a sophisticated brand technology unit where we help our clients to navigate the landscape in technology and branding. And well, that business unit doubled last year because people understood immediately this is not the time anymore to to dwell on things. We just have to start doing things in terms of, of, for example, everybody working from home means that you need to be equipped with tools, just productivity tools on brand that you right. can apply each and every day. So, and then uh, that's maybe another layer. For our own business, we have around 70 people. We've been working very much on a distance with our clients around the world for the last 15 years. So the switch to go all digital and, and no longer in the office was not that big for us. I think that also helped uh, tremendously. Wow. Yeah. How did, has it made it easier for you to work then? Because people are more accepting of the digital space well i think that's as a temporary thing so it's easier because like like you you're in arizona i'm in the netherlands and you are as far away as my screen is that's how far i mean i can almost reach out to you and if we both put our hands on the on the camera on the screen we can do but but for example this this morning i had a call with uh, one of our clients in tokyo and uh, of course there's a time difference of like 10 hours but other than that, the distance is as far as the screen. I've never met this client. Uh, we don't need to. Uh, mostly we get recommended or introduced to our potential clients. That's also what's happened here. And, you know, it's just normally by now you would go like uh, on a trip to Tokyo to, to, yeah, to do the chemistry meetings and all those things. And nowadays everybody is, is at home or uh, if they're lucky in an office. And uh, the distance has become smaller, not bigger. It's more functional. It's less. It's more boring. But in terms of productivity, it's become easier to work around the world. And of course, if you weren't used to that before, that might be difficult. For us, we just personally, I was traveling three, three, three four days a week, every week, uh, before the pandemic. And now I'm not traveling. If I have to go to Amsterdam, that's 
an hour 15 drive. Right. Like, yeah, I'm complaining to my wife that, okay, I have to go to Amsterdam. What? I'm just going to lose two and a half hours of productive time. Right. So and that's a total mind shift, I, I think. It's interesting you say that because when I left for the U.S. in December 2019, I lost a client because he wanted me to be in Norway, even though we always worked on the phone and I and we yeah. worked on Zoom. It was just... I was in Oslo and he was a different city in Norway, but still he did not feel comfortable wanting me in the U S and it's just yeah. so interesting how that's completely shifted right now. Cause I work with Norway daily as well as I work here in the U S all over the country. It's very yeah. But I assume you may, you may have lost one client, but then I would be interested to hear how many you gained. Oh, I gained this. a lot more. So it's just funny. So, you know, but it's it was just funny how that attitude was. I, I just was. In, I thought it was wow. Okay, but that's definitely changed. <laughs> Attitude-wise, I mean, I remember that uh, to do like an annual review with our directors that we have in the company in the in the foreign offices. You would go there. You would have a dinner. Then you would do the review. You would write it all down, and that's how. In the first weeks of the pandemic, I remember that we kept postponing those. Like we'll do that when we can meet again. Right, And of course, after seven or eight weeks, it was clear that was not going to happen. And we started doing those reviews, very personal uh, uh, reviews online. And of course, that worked brilliantly. I mean, to an extent, even more personal, I think, because you're much more in the moment than when you are distracted by other things around you. Isn't that um, interesting? So you have grown in your business, but a lot of the people that you're helping were not growing and you're helping repositioning them. What were like the three things that you really saw, like almost like an overview of, of what were things that people needed to think about? Yeah. Well, that's three things is maybe uh, not enough, but let's see. Okay. Get let's to. just go with so, the, it's more that we go with more. Yeah. So I think one of the first things that we see generically is that people want to know the origin of food and products. I mean, when this all came out uh, of China, you are just thinking, hey, why do we want stuff to come that far away? And we cannot see through also in terms of responsibility and sustainability where this came from. It is strange right. that we do no longer understand what the value of the supply chain for us looks like. So I think really there's been quite a, a lot of coming out of new views on what a supply chain would be. I mean, of course, a few weeks ago, we had the ship in the, in the Suez Canal, which, which was a trouble right. for people in Europe, but uh, that's maybe on the side. But really, you, you want more transparency on where stuff is coming from, especially if you, if you live with the idea that the pandemic emerged from a market in China, if that's, if that's your, what you believe, then we, we've seen a lot of that. And uh, so... You can also translate that to nearshoring and offshoring, for example, in IT. So they're the same applies. You, you see that people start revisiting the concept of the length of supply chains and compared to the cost. So that's one thing. Another observation is um, that, of course, and this became quite clear in the beginning, we will have too much office space and also the, the role of city centers. What will be the role of city centers yeah. if you have less retail and less offices? Because uh, and you can see this, for example, in a city like New York. I mean, and also in London, like until now, 20% of people 
one of them to have moved out. And the question is how many of those people will ever want to return? If you think about city planning and, and scaping, that, that will be massive changes. Now, there's also a lot of people who go like, well, we'll all go back and it will be the same. But uh, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, no, that's I'm really not so an sure. area that's huge. And I agree with that. So what have you seen? Uh, is there like a glut of real estate right now? Like, say, Netherlands? Or is well, you know, the are real like estate, companies giving up their real estate, like these big corporations well, the, that you work with? The, the real estate market. So who is buying the stock of real estate companies? That is institutional investors. Mm. So before you see the and, and institutional investors then on the stock market. So first you see uh, a natural movement of Everybody saying, no, we'll stay there. We might give people a rent-free period, but they will return. Now it's taking longer in a big part of the world. A lot of people have cut back on their rent costs if they could already. And the value of real estate is, is a multiple of the rent that you can aggregate with real estate. So if that structurally goes down, say, 20%, then in the end of the day, 20% of the value of the investment of real estate is coming down, and you will see that reflected in how the stock market responds. Right. And obviously, in the stock market, you can already see a, a surge in the technology-driven, digital-driven shares and pressure on anything that is deemed to be more traditional, whether it's yeah. oil, for example, or whether it's real estate. But, but the effect of the real estate and the effect of the development of city capital, I think we are yet to see that come in. And, and on a macroeconomic level, we should not forget, and, and, and most people do forget, that we seem to be absorbing this whole economic impact by just printing more money. And we can do that because the printing of money nowadays is for free, because the global interest rate is lower than we can ever remember. It's right. close to zero. So that, for people with an economical background, I can just not understand how the system could function. I mean, I, I can understand whilst the interest rates are so low because money is for free. Print, right. if, if we all print money, well, then the only thing that happens is deflation of the value of money and increase of the value of stock. So those, those are more macroeconomical effects from what's happening. But I think that's what we are seeing as one result as that we're getting more office space. That sounds pretty simple, but there's, there's a lot of, yeah, knock-on effects to that. Yet another effect on, on, on what's happening for brands is that the brand owner's impact on the customer journey will radically change. So if you look traditionally, customer decision journey is from awareness to consideration, purchase, experience, and advocacy. So that's pre-purchase, purchase, and post-purchase, if you wish. Right. And what we've seen due to the increased digitalization is that the influence from a brand owner on the moment of purchase has been decreasing because if the moment of purchase gets automated by online shopping or by other means, then you have inf less influence as a brand owner right in the middle of the customer, customer decision journey. Mm. And it means for brands that we see that a lot of our clients are focusing more about creating awareness and consideration, preference if you wish, and we also see a lot of work in optimizing customer uh, journeys and customer experiences because the delivery of the product after the purchase or the experience and then 
creating the loyalty and the advocacy phase is really where you can exercise much more influence than in the moment of purchase. I mean, if you, if you only think about, uh, if you go online, you want to buy something, the first thing you get is Google Shopping and you get a few choices. If you're not up there, then you'll be out of business because your 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 point of sale purchase, like say in a, in a petrol station where you can buy stuff uh, from the shelf, you can see it, yeah. it's no longer there because you're not, you're getting there less and, and you're yeah. So it, how have they solved that? Because uh, do they spend more money on Google search then, or is it being more smart with the well, keywords thing? Or so the whole performance marketing, if you wish, that's all around the point of conversion of purchase. Right. But the brand building is really where you where you see that a lot of big companies are shifting to say a more and you see this especially with B2B companies to more growth hacking methodology. So they're applying the whole systems of inbound marketing. So in the old days your sales reps in B2B companies would go to an exhibition that took place five times a year and we would all go there you would, the whole year would be occupied with trade shows from one to another. It would be a calendar, and, and those sales reps would go there. Uh, they would know who they wanted to meet. They would go to the booths of others, and that was how the B2B sales was done. And nowadays, and you can see this if you compare, for example, with car sales. I mean, if you are going to buy a car, and you go the moment you go to the dealership, you know almost everything. It's just that you, you haven't had the test drive, but all the other stuff you've done. And so B2B is changing as well. If you for B2B salesperson, your influence is only to flesh out a, a tailor-made proposal for the client, if you wish. But the whole fact-finding and intelligence has been done by the marketing team. So the marketing team has put out growth uh, hacking initiatives like creating content for, for leadership to make sure that you, you are seen as one of the big brands in a certain sector. Then you have the right solutions and you help clients to navigate with the solutions. But the moment they start talking to you and they reach out to you, they've already seen all of that. So you get much more educated buyers, but it means that your sales reps need to behave totally different. Now, the branding implication of all of that is in, is in the positioning, but also in how do you train your own staff in how they behave and what they know at a certain moment in time. And this was all... This was all coming to us for the last 10 years. But if you read the research from McKinsey and others, on average, there's various sources, also like the, the Bains of the world, four to six times acceleration of speed of digitalization is what we are oh, seeing wow. through to COVID. And it also means that, of course, for a lot of board members of the clients that we work with, it's just instantly dawned upon them. Like we, It's not a matter of, yeah, considering making scenarios, it is about what you do. You can also see that a lot of companies are really pivoting as a result of that. I mean, one of our clients is Racket, formerly known as Racket Bank Easer, and then RB. They just come out with a new strategy. And of course, they, they do in health and hygiene products, it's really household names like, like Dettel and Lysol and what have you, but also health solutions. And yeah, anything in the space of hygiene has, of course, been tremendously different in the positioning. I mean, if you so imagine, I mean, you're traveling in the US. If you go to a hotel, let me I'll make a personal. If I go to a hotel, I used to be in free hotels every week. I wouldn't bother who did the cleaning or 
what their system was to make sure that the hygiene was okay. I just really, yeah, you, it was not an issue. It was not in your level of awareness. Whereas now, if I go to a hotel, I think I would be willing to pay a premium if I knew to what extent this hotel had, had assured that my room was clean, uh, the hallway was clean, how often, uh, how they make sure that my bed is clean. I mean, normally I would just assume it's clean, but now you would never know. And, and now it's it's totally fond of mind for me to know that. So if you are in the hotel business or renting out a space business, or you're in the supply chain for that, that must be a huge opportunity to redefine customer experience. And I bet there's a lot of customers who are very interested in, in that type of thing. So and, and yeah, people who are leading those businesses, of course, they can they can see that coming. So that's so interesting because like, do you think now that communications and PR is having more of a prominence or is it marketing taking over PR, but those qualities of PR and communication is more important, the whole development of a thought leader? PR and marketing, that's that's talking about definitions. But let's, I mean, marketing is more, I would say, for me, marketing is always directed at the customer. Right. And communications is directed at all stakeholder groups. For me, that's a very important... Oh, I like that definition. ...distinction. And so marketing has always to do with a sales uh, funnel, and communications is multi-stakeholder. And I think if you... I'm sure you are familiar... Are you familiar with the Page Society? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a member of the Page Society, and I'm also the country chair in, in the Netherlands and in Germany, and I chair the co-chair with Patty Kushner in America, the working group for corporate brand. But if you look at, at the page model, the page model consists of four pillars. It's culture, it's societal value, it's corporate brand, and comms technology. And comms technology is new since one and a half years. And I think if you look at the rise of ESG and the awareness, then you can see that the whole societal value domain has become fundamental for business leaders. And why is this? It's because their investors have started to look at that more firmly. And of course, Larry Fink started doing that in his annual letters. And I remember when he did that the first time, we were talking with Pete clients at Carlisle, and they said, well, well, he's putting it out there, but we, their own people don't get it yet because they still sing the old-fashioned Anglo-Saxon, uh, you have to make profit now, uh, some. But that's what that's now, I think, three years ago. And they've really caught up with their game. We can also see in the work that we do with the investor rating agencies around the world, so people like Fitch and, and Moody's and Standard & Poor's, they are buying ESG rating companies like Basie. So because there's a new construct for measuring and rating stock, it's no longer just on financial performance, but also on the what they call the non, non-financial performance. So this whole debate about increasing transparency, uh, doing things for good, be aware of the societal and the ESGs, or environmental, societal, and, and economical, governmental, yeah, almost framework around the company, that's become huge. So I don't think marketing has become more important. I think this is really the communications area where you communicate with investors, with employees, and and the general public. And people just no longer accept from companies that they are not 
well organized to cope with what their footprint is beyond making a profit. And I think the work of the, that the Page Society is doing and that is, is really paving the way for others. They also are bringing out working guides on all of those four domains that I mentioned. Uh, I think no, I think communications and PR, if you wish, has become way more important as a result because it's much more about orchestrating the intangible relationship between an organization and its audiences. And that is much more complicated or multifaceted than managing what you see. And what you right. see is, you, know, you can see the customer, you can know, you know what you want to sell. I'm not saying that's easy. That's an art in itself, the marketing space. But communications is really wider, more multifaceted, and yeah, increased demand for transparency. Again, also driven by digitalization that makes that possible. And that's where we've seen a lot of yeah, new initiatives come out. And most of our clients, we see that there's a debate on the, the, the person with the responsibility for sustainability. Is that the chief communications officer or is that a separate officer? And mostly those people are positioned one level under the board. So we have clients where I see that there's an appointment of independent chief sustainability officers as a new function, just like we saw 10 years ago with the new chief digital officer. I think chief sustainability officer really, yeah, what the digital officer was 10 years ago. Now you see that chief digital officers get taken out again as roles because everybody knows it's integrated in everything. And sustainability oh, is not. So what do you do? You put the light on it and you emphasize it for like five or 10 years and then it becomes more hygiene again. But we also have a lot of clients, chief communication officers, who get sustainability in their remit. But it's really, it's not the same job, if you ask me. So yeah, it's quite interesting. It is interesting. So if you look at the whole space of, of video and, and Zoom and and how do brands brand themselves and what have you learned from this year? I mentioned acceleration. And what I can see is that so many things that I mentioned to this uh, on this example about doing an annual review uh, with, with a colleague. I think behavior-wise, we're all in the same boat. Uh, right. That, that has just forced us to change. I don't know how the world how the world would have coped with this four years ago or three years ago huh. because the technology was not ready. Oh, that's the bandwidth was not ready. Right. So in a way, I think we've been really lucky that the technology was there. I think what you can see with a lot of electronical devices and, and uh, is that the yeah we're entering the era of voice. So interfaces are changing with computers. This gets expressed in many ways. I mean, we can talk to our phone, we can talk to our, our NAF uh, system in our car. Smaller children start talking to a TV, expecting that the TV will respond. <laughs> TV is not a Google Assistant. So that, that has a lot of implications. I mean, if I can buy batteries in my home with Google Assistant or with Alexa, I will have a different interface to buying the batteries because the interface will not give me seven or eight choices because it would talk about, okay, so John, do you want A, B, C, no. So the interface is most likely giving you maybe three options, which would be Amazon Prime, if it was Alexa. That's, that's cheap yeah. and, and mainstream. Maybe they offer me Duracell as AAA brand and maybe something in between, but maybe I only get two choices. And the next time that I need batteries, 
it will just remember what I bought last time. So if you think about oh, so the power of the interface. Change, wow, I never even uh, thought about that. Because it, yeah, because we're all about convenience. And why would I need to know what is the brand I'm using in my remote controller for my TV? I mean, wow. that's a strange idea. You only, only when that's not on automatic, you want to know, but it's, it's just because you need to, not because you want to know. Because right. the thing just needs to work. So, so that's a big thing. I think in, in audio, uh, if you look at things like Clubhouse, yeah, yeah we, we, that's, that's the era of voice in audio really coming to us. Yeah, what do you I'm think sure. about Clubhouse? What do you think about that? I didn't think it was going to take that fly. It's really, it's really been powerful. And when I was listening to some people, they've been listening when it started in the beginning in January, at least that's when it, I got on board. Everyone's been like listening six, seven hours. This is so incredible, blah, 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 blah. But now I feel kind of lost in it. It's kind of hard to find what I really want to look for. And, yeah. and I yeah. think it's, I'm not sure. What do you think? Yeah, I remember doing, a, a, so uh, Herbert Heidman, whom you know, he asked me to do an expert uh, talk also in general when we just got familiar in Europe with the whole uh, Clubhouse app. You know, the, the valuation of Clubhouse was 100 million a year ago. It was 1 billion in January. And also, I think we had a million users in January and we have 4 million users now on the platform. Wow. So and I think most people who will be listening to your podcast will know by now that it's just an audio app. It's like an online radio system where you can talk about anything. You can be your own broadcaster, publisher. So yes, I think a lot of people were quite excited. I like it for the interface because it's much more personal than, for example, on Twitter. So the general sentiment on Clubhouse is positive. People are not ranting at others. There is a good level of sophistication in how you deal with human interaction. Whereas Twitter, you can be anonymous and Clubhouse is much more difficult to be anonymous. So in terms of personality and character, I think it's fairly rich. What I did notice though is, for example, I I am no longer using Clubhouse. Because if you go on Clubhouse, it's like doing this podcast with you. I have to isolate myself from the rest of the world. And the only thing I'm doing is talking to you with a 100% focus, it's impossible for me to do other things. Whereas if I'm browsing on social media, on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter, I can I can take my phone in my hand, I can go on and off and in and out. And for me, Clubhouse is too consuming. And, oh. and this is also because it's adjacent to work days where I'm behind the screen for more than eight hours a day. Right. So I, I'm a bit... Yeah, I, I like to go back to authenticity and to do things in my garden or right. with my children or my wife or walk the dog just to balance the screen time with the rest of my life. And I feel that, of course, I could walk the dog with Clubhouse in my ears. But uh, yeah, for me, that's a bit, uh, it's not what I would do. So I think- It's interesting you say that because that's kind of how I felt. Like in the beginning, I was listening to Clubhouse, but it, it takes too much of my time. And because I'm on screen, like Zoom, if I'm on more than Zoom, more than four hours, I get really, and there's no breaks. I really, yeah. like my head just goes like this and I have to get myself out. I have to take a break. So I, I feel like my day is changing where I really have to be mindful of that. And so I have not been really listening to it for the last couple of weeks. Exactly. That's what I see as well. At the same time, if you are brand owner, it's right. a different thing. It's like with all the new other platforms that are exploding, like we've seen 
Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok now. I mean, you just have to be there. If you are B2C or even B2B, it's a place where you can have your own channel and the interaction with people is really real. I could see that if I was a brand owner, whatever I was uh, selling or, or what I wanted to communicate about, it's a really good platform for that because the algorithm is also centered around like you will find the content that is fitting your profile. And I think that is really powerful about it. And uh, yeah, direct engagement for that is really important. Yeah, I can, I can see professionally very interesting, but, but just the curiosity with me was very large in the beginning, four months ago. Like similar to you, I'm sure you yeah. will. I think we're all, all over it. It's interesting to understand how it works. I will also be interested to see how they are going to monetize uh, Clubhouse. So do you get subscriptions? I mean, they could also have brand owners pay or they can choose an advertising model. Well, with everything that's happening with Facebook and the likes, I don't think they will go there. But it's, it can be hugely profitable, of course. Yeah, I think the jury is out. Personally, I mean, I, yeah, my focus is I'm, I'm not the one who needs to use that channel. So Vim Group would not need it. You don't think Vim Group would need it? No, we don't. No, we don't need it. No. Why would you not need it? I'm just curious. Because you're already known within the circles that you want to be, or is it that you've created a certain thought? No, I mean, there's, I mean, everybody, I think, is interested. If you want to increase your audience, right? It's interesting to to use platforms to increase your audience, and I think right. that's what you could do on Clubhouse. I think at the moment it's really crowded. I think the service that we are provided is very niche, very specific. Right. And I feel, and maybe we can talk a bit more about that, but if you, this is a generation thing, maybe. Hmm. So I'm a Gen X, and uh, if the way I consume information, and our clients are typically not under 30, let me put it that way, maybe not under 35, not over 55 or 60, but somewhere in between. The way we, uh, those generations, consume information is by reading, taking it in, and then maybe engage in a conversation. If you look at the younger generations, they, they just, and I can see that when we have uh, three children, the youngest is 14, she is talking to her phone the whole day, and sometimes it's, like a, it's with someone else, or then it's a commando, or I don't know. That's, I would, that's changing rapidly, right? Right. So I think the answer is uh, it has to do with the demographics of your audience and how they consume information or how they communicate. I think that is a part. So like all the social media, you see that some social media platforms are used by younger generations and others are used by older generations. Like my kids are telling me that of course Facebook and LinkedIn is great, but when I went on Snapchat a year ago, they they really stormed into my office here at home and they said, what are you doing? We do not want to see you on Snapchat because you would do foolish, stupid things. And you just, you stay on LinkedIn or Facebook, Twitter, but you do not. Is Snapchat still relevant? Excuse me, can you repeat that? Is Snapchat still relevant? I thought well, uh, I thought Instagram kind of took over that space from them, I, in a sense, for no, I, I thought with, with the younger generations, it's very alive. It because very alive. because with Snapchat, uh, they, the messages, uh, they disappear, right? Right. So that is very strong for the young generation. That's what <laughs> you want. I can see that with my oldest, uh, well, not children, son, 
and, and daughter, they are 19 and 21, right. they are already very conscious of what is the footprint that we're leaving behind in the digital space. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's my niece. So too. That's why they definitely fancy the channels where um, it's not sticking, or where you nice. can still find it 10 years later. Yeah, we, <laughs> they're quite aware of that. Uh, this is what I'm seeing. Yeah, it's interesting because my nieces, they are young and they keep changing their accounts and deleting their accounts so that they don't have a footprint. So it's very, and here I am just not really caring, but that's interesting because it's by demographic. So what would you say is the most important now after COVID has been the social media channel that has really flourished as opposed to not Clubhouse, but like of the other ones that you've been seeing? I don't think I can tell you that because I think it will vary for each and every what, what your intent is. I think we can still see that Twitter is used a lot by journalists or people or communicators right. even. Yeah. That's what you can still see. What I what I can see more is that a lot of our clients are just setting up their own newsrooms. So really taking control of the messaging and the content that they produce rather than yeah, using the money to create external content really created in-house and curate uh, the content and then push it out across all the channels that are relevant and, of course, monitor the traction of that. And for some brands, of course, increasingly, it's important to have engagement and dialogue and conversation with audiences. That also makes a lot of difference. But for the younger generations, I think they just use different channels because they're wired differently. I mean, if if you look at, uh, at all those generations, I mean, generations that was, say, 1995 until now, so those are the, the kids between 15 and, and, and 25. And also the millennials, the people who are now in their early 30s, they just take information in a new way and they want different things. They consume all this information through the screen. So they like visual beauty. And of course, you process images way faster than text. And the way they get their information needs to be really sleek and designed. I also think that you see this especially with uh, the millennials. They have indicated that brand purpose is really important to them in their decision-making. So the, the, this whole thinking of Simon Sinek, of the why, the how, and the what is, is for, the, for the generation Y and the millennials a really important thing. Not that they can always afford it. So if, if the why comes at a price premium, that doesn't necessarily mean that they buy it. But for sure, and especially the, the younger generations will want to see more of the, well, in communication terms, more of the ESG footprint right. of an organization, of the, of the why. And I think we can see that. So if those target groups are important for you, you need to make sure in your, in your content strategy that you tailor it around content that is really accommodating for that. But really, if you, if you think about Gen Set and the, uh, what's happening in how the interfaces are changing. I think you see uh, less writing. So, I mean, uh, we published a book three years ago. Uh, <laughs> and every time I send, when I send a book, I write a few lines for the, for the person who's on receiving the book. And I just, my hand gets stiff from writing a few lines. Right. Which, of course, 20 years ago was quite different. So today's Generation Z, they, don't, they hardly write. They use a lot of channels. Writing skills are less developed as a result. And the way they think and process information has not necessarily become worse. It's just different. You can also see that they're really good at gaming. The other week, we did a company-wide uh, online escape room. People like myself, I was just totally frustrated after 10 minutes. 
didn't know where to start, of course wanted to take the lead but couldn't, missing out basically. And, and that's where you can see this, this totally being attuned of this generation to the new way of consuming information that is really changing. And I, I, my, yeah, my biggest recommendation would be to make sure that you have younger people around you also in communications because the, the, the interface to the world is really changing as we speak. We spoke about voice branding. That's where you can see it. And then voice apps, but also voice branding. I mean, if you look at Alexa or Google Assistant, you are not in control over the, the, the voice that you are using because you can just choose male, female, and then anything that right. you're not making it. But you could imagine that if you are, say you are a Volkswagen car manufacturer, to have control over how the device in the car, the car is speaking with you, is that a Volkswagen voice? And you could say, well, Volkswagen voice, what do, what do I care? Well, if it was a yeah. Porsche voice, mm. I think you would care. But you, you don't want it to be just another default voice. So maybe for some brands, the voice in the interface is quite important. Wow. So it also means that, that for example, for communicators, uh, we used to be really good in, in the way we got to the, you know, to the more senior levels because we were good journalists, good writing skills. Maybe in the future, it's much more about speaking skills or interaction skills. I'm not so sure about how that will find out, but definitely the interface is changing. We got computers 35 years ago or so. We got a, a keyboard to translate what we were thinking into the machine. And now we've been totally created as humans around giving, getting access to the machine for the keyboard. And now it's changing to do that by voice the input as well as the output. And we were not trained for that. We're just learning. But the younger generations will be much more first to that. I think I can't totally grasp what the implication will be, but I think you can see in many ways with all the new solutions and the technological possibilities that that's going to change as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, coming to a close, if you look at what brands do you think have done really, really well and have managed this COVID in a way that's made them come out in the right way. I mean, you guys have done it. Vim Group has done it. You guys have done really, really well. What other companies would you say you've really thought, wow, they did a really good turnaround? I don't think we we did anything about that at VIM Group. We've just been lucky that our business was suited for this problem. If we would have been a hotel, we would just have to close the shop and see how but would we you have anticipated that you would have done well? Like, I wouldn't have anticipated that that would have been done well. And, and, and no, so, no, no, we, we, no. We were, really, we were really concerned in April when this happened yeah. because we thought it was going to focus. I think if you look at, well, let's, let's talk about mainstream is the vaccine business, right? Right. I mean, what's interesting to see, for example, in the UK with AstraZeneca. So we have the Oxford vaccine distributed and manufactured by AstraZeneca. It seems to be a deliberate choice that in the beginning it was Oxford vaccine and then it was the AstraZeneca vaccine. And now AstraZeneca came out that they renamed the vaccine to something that is difficult to pronounce for people. Uh, but I know from AstraZeneca, it's a very fine, fantastic, stellar, science-driven pharmaceutical company. And this has just caught them on the side. All at once, they were in a position that they could help the world 
by making a vaccine together with Oxford, and they did. Now it's been difficult to get that vaccine to the market uh, in a way that everybody likes because there's a scarcity of demand. And a lot of people go, well, AstraZeneca is not a good company. I think they tried their best to help the world by producing the vaccine right. uh, and as quickly as possible because that was the most important thing six months ago. And yeah, I think they are some backfire from the, all that well-intended work because in the end of the day, they were not a vaccine company. Pfizer, at the same time, I think they have taken the momentum from the whole COVID pandemic because they have been working on a repositioning in the background for the last two years. Right. They didn't know exactly when to bring the positioning out. Then the pandemic hit. And like in January, they announced a repositioning so that they were better fit as a pharmaceutical or a vaccine company. I think, yeah, it's also, they've been quick on their feet if you look at the size of the business. And uh, I think their look was that they had something prepared already because if you, if you are a pharmaceutical company in the vaccine business, you have to prepare something last year. Right. That would never have been possible. So I, I'm not so, and of course, companies like, like Patagonia, that's the, the example that everybody uses, they've been doing really well because they're purpose-led. And uh, if the transparency goes up in, in a, a year like this and the demand for a good footprint goes up, Yes, of course, they are well positioned, but that's not that's not due to the pandemic. It's in their favor because it's increasingly seen as important, but they were doing that already. So for sure, there will be examples of, but I think a lot of people have been lucky or unlucky. That would be more my take. And, and you have to deal with that as it happens. Wow, yeah. that's a really good point. Yeah, no, you're either lucky or unlucky in this situation. And, you yeah, and of course, of course, a lot of people, everybody in the world is able to spin this. So right. I can, I, I am able, you are able, every communicator, every marketer, every business leader is quick on their feet to pivot and say, hey, this is how it happened for us. And it's beautiful. But that's the framing. But in the end of the day, I think what you were when this happened was difficult to predict. So do you think we'll go back to the face-to-face meeting? I was interested because I interviewed like almost right after you, I interviewed someone that was a hairdresser for the, for the famous people here in the U S and he's never had social media has never had to have it. He's had this in-person kind of a rethink yeah. kind of way of doing it. And I asked him just a couple of weeks ago, how are you doing? And he goes, I'm thriving. I've never done as well as in my life. And he's still not on social media. So do you think there's still a space for that in-person relationships? But this is the question that's bothering me. So I don't know how much time we have, but I'm personally, for example, I just, I don't know the exact answer because I can see that a lot of work where we used to travel for, right. for personal relationships that we thought was really important has proven to be less important. Now, of course, socially, we want to go out. But I, you, you will see that's that business travel, and that's also the predictions of the big airlines of the world and the, the global air travel industry, business travel will never return in the next five or 10 years to where we used to be. Because all the big corporations will just put in place a committee to say, well, that's great, uh, Torrent. Why do you want to fly? I mean, you can just be on Zoom with your client or your colleague. And if you want to go throw a party, that's great. You can go on holiday. But it, it will be less necessary. There will also be the environmental impact. So that's why I'm just struggling to answer the question. Uh, I think the jury is out. That's what I think. And there will be examples where it's definitely 
going to change, and there will also be a lot of examples where it's not going to change. For example, my, my wife, she does yoga, and the yoga is now online because she can't go to the class. But so she could also have yoga from someone in Australia. I don't think she will go back to the class here where we live, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, Difficult for me. Oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting reflection. Yeah, so the jury's out. So I might have yeah, to- Sorry, no answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you, Mark. This is really, really interesting. Do you have any last reflection before we before we say goodbye and thank you for uh, what you've really provided? Really some interesting insights. I, I didn't think about the audio, the interface, you know. Do you have any? I think, no, not, not anything. Just for everybody, stay curious and, and try to think ahead because you can see, I mean, this time it was this virus that hit us. It could have been something else. And the question is whether we will be better prepared next time. I'm not so sure about that. So, uh, and I'm an optimist, don't get me wrong. I mean, so I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, I see opportunities. But, but you need curiosity to keep thinking about what could be next or what you can do with certain developments in your own environment. Stay curious and stay prepared. I like that. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you happen to like this episode, please share with your friends. And if you're new, please pop on over to your favorite podcast app and subscribe. Leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and how we can improve and make this better or how this has helped you. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode.